0: Thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning. Uh, We're going to shift focus a little bit now and take a look at the devastation that remains in parts of Indonesia, this following an earthquake and a tsunami, a deadly earthquake and tsunami, killing more than 2,000 people in that area. And joining me on the line now is Lindsay Gladding, a Canadian aid worker who was in that area. Lindsay, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, walk us through what you saw and uh, what you were doing in Indonesia.
1: Yeah, so I was in, in Palu City two weeks ago. It's um, a city in central Sulawesi um, that on September 28th uh, experienced a 7.4 magnitude earthquake. That, that, that uh, incident in itself was enough to, to knock down buildings, to destroy schools. But immediately after the earthquake, there was also a tsunami The wave came in three kilometers inland and then to make matters even worse, the soil in that part of Indonesia is extremely moist. And so what
0: happened is that it literally turned to liquid with entire villages being sucked into the earth. And it's just—I mean, we we saw some of the images in the coverage of this, but it seems like actually, I, I mean, the the devastation seems a lot worse than than what we actually saw and how things were brought, uh, things were reported from that area. Would you would you say is it was it much worse, or was it uh, worse than you had anticipated? It certainly was worth, worse than I
1: anticipated. I I agree the the media coverage was. Um, not as significant as I would have expected being on the ground. I mean, I, I was in one village where really as far as I could see, there was not a building standing. Everything had collapsed um, and, and was sunken into the earth. It, I mean, it's a, scene, it's a disaster that I haven't seen um, caused by, by natural um,
0: causes anywhere else on the planet. So where are people living when, when these villages in their entirety have been lost? Yeah, so a lot of people are living in
1: tents a lot of people are living, you know, higher up in very mountainous regions as well, and so people feel safer um, on the higher ground. You know, fearing the the potential that a tsunami could happen again. Um, so they're they're living in very rudimentary, uh, you know, shelters. Certainly not um, shelters that are going to withstand
0: uh, adverse weather at all. And you must have met many people who who have lost loved ones and are just trying to to build their build things back and trying to deal with this? Yeah, I mean, I met a number of
1: of incredible people while I was there. I met um, one man who was sitting beside um a destroyed home um and told us that his wife and children were somewhere in the wreckage. I mean this was three weeks after the disaster. I mean completely um you know wrecked by what has happened and the loss that his family has, has experienced. But I also met incredible survivors. I mean I met a woman named Ugi who has four children, you know, ages three to thirteen and after the earthquake struck, she could only find two of them um, and as she was digging through mud, trying to hold onto a coconut tree to not be swept out to the ocean with the tsunami, um, she was able to save another boy uh, who was stuck in the water um, and ultimately was able to find all of her children and survived. It,
0: the long term recovery is going to be significant for families like this. And i mean it 's hard to even imagine the the mm-hmm. the, the rescues the dramatic uh, what 's happening yeah. uh, what about uh, as far as hospitals and and because there must be so many people as well who are not only psychologically trying to deal with this but who are physically injured
1: mm-hmm. yeah, so there were thousands of people who were injured um, in, in the immediate aftermath of the disaster hospital. I saw a, a maternity hospital that you know as is not operational anymore it 's been too um, destroyed by the earthquake. So there are I mean, there are medical clinics that have opened up other hospitals that were that were not affected that are certainly, you know, at capacity and and doing their best to, to meet the needs even today.
0: And are there still a number of aid groups there or are there people are they getting the help that they need?
1: Yeah, I think that that you know the the people of Indonesia are no strangers to disaster. Um, they certainly have strong capacity to be able to respond um, to disasters. Of course, something like this you know overwhelms even good capacity on the ground to respond, um, which is why international um, support um, is is vital really to the long-term recovery um, of these communities.
0: Uh, did you get the sense though when you talk about where villages have been wiped out mm-hmm. and the liquefaction from the earthquake? Will they even be able to rebuild in those areas?
1: Yeah, there are certainly large parts of land that um, will not be able to be rebuilt and that the government will essentially um, acknowledge as mass graves. You know, I saw um, uh, we, I, I came to the end of a bridge um, one day and in, again in front of me, as far as I could see, was a cornfield. The local people that were with me told me that at the end of that road, before the disaster, was a village. The village essentially has been sucked into the earth, and the cornfield moved three kilometers um, down the road to uh, to land right here at the end of that bridge. It, that
0: there are thousands of people um, buried in that ground. No
1: one will rebuild
0: there. Wow. Is the number then, when we say in some of the numbers that I had seen uh, saying more than 2,000 people uh, fatalities, is it Mm -hmm. quite likely that that's that's a conservative uh, number and the number is actually quite larger?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are for sure hundreds, if not thousands of people who are still missing, um, who at this point are presumed dead. Um, So that that number is certainly
0: conservative. Um, You're you're at a... um, a conference right now dealing uh, with uh, humanitarian response and such. When something like this happens, when it's a, a, an earthquake and a tsunami, nothing nothing that can be prevented, uh, how do we learn from this or how do we figure out the best ways to respond and to, and to be helpful?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's if- Certainly prevention is important, but also that people know how to respond when this kind of disaster happens. And so one of the things that World Vision does immediately after um, a disaster like this is to set up child family spaces. And so these are a place for children to come and to feel safe, uh, to be able to apply, but also to learn how to protect themselves. Um, and so when I was in Palu two weeks ago, I saw children learning songs about what to do when an earthquake hits, how to get to higher ground. I mean, these are things that genuinely save lives when when disasters like this happen we can't prevent them um, but we can ensure that our immediate responses is, is much better to save more
0: lives uh, and I mean that must be another uh, an, another effect of this too is uh, with the children I'm assuming that a lot of the schools were destroyed as well mm-hmm. or, or that kids aren't even probably back at school yet
1: yeah so for sure school was completely shut down for for three weeks after the earthquake when I was there um, Some schools, schools that were not affected, uh, schools that were not destroyed by the earthquake, were starting to reopen. Um, But there there are quite a number of schools that, as you said, are completely destroyed and and will not be able to reopen anytime soon. Um, So things like child-friendly spaces uh, really help to fill that gap uh, for a short time until we can get schools up and running again.
0: And what is the weather like there right now?
1: Um, so right now, it is relatively good. The rainy season, though, is coming. Um and so you know, we are concerned about people living in in you know tarpaulin built shelters um, that they're going to need something more permanent um, before the rains come.
0: right. because I, I mean, and uh, that must be top of mind for a lot of people in mm-hmm. that they're just surviving day to day and dealing with this. and that that's going to make things so much more difficult.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, we're particularly concerned for children in these kinds of situations. They're incredibly vulnerable when something like this happens um, and when people aren't able to you know, meet their most basic needs, um, then children become even more vulnerable.
0: And do you get the sense or did you get the sense when you were there that the, the relief efforts, uh, that the help will continue on and will we'll be there for quite some time to make sure uh, that people are helped and what rebuilding can be done? Yeah, I think what
1: we often see is that the the immediate aftermath, the immediate relief effort, is quite um, quite strong, is very well resourced. There there was a fair amount of attention of attention um, for this disaster when it first happened, um, but even now, three four weeks on, it's fading from people's attention, from people's memory, um, and and the resources dry up very quickly. We know that I mean this disaster happened in an instant, but it's going to take years for these communities to rebuild and and significant resources to be able to rebuild entire villages, Um, that's not something that is going to come easy and and is going to
0: um, require us to be there for the long term. Uh, Because this is a region, too, that has been hit with uh, tsunamis in the past. And uh, unfortunately, uh, rebuilding isn't uh, necessarily a new thing. It's something that, uh, that has been done in that area before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well I, I did spend a few days in Palu. I also spent some days in, in Lombok, which is a, a a town on another island that experienced an earthquake um two months uh, before this earthquake in Palu. Um Lombok is also in Indonesia, so our, our staff are there trying to respond to that disaster as well. Uh there was also an earthquake in Bali. I I mean so this is a, a an area of the world that is incredibly prone to natural disasters um, and is going to need to invest um, in really good infrastructure, really good um, preparedness and response efforts. I mean, this is not uh, going to go away.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking some time uh, with us today and uh, for bringing us up to date on uh, what's happening in that region. Uh, Thanks again for being on the show. We'll leave it there, but thank you uh, so much for your time. Thank you very much. Well, there will be Remembrance Day bells ringing in various ceremonies uh, right across the country today. Uh, The biggest one in Canada likely taking place uh, in Ottawa. Also, very uh, there will be many ceremonies right here in BC. The biggest one in this province likely at Victory Square. That's where I will be. Global BC will have extended coverage of the ceremony at uh, 11 o'clock starting before then. So a bit later on this morning. Uh, But let's check in now with mercedes Stevens she is the global news ottawa bureau chief she will be taking part and covering the remembrance day ceremony in ottawa mercedes thank you so much for being with us this morning good morning good morning joel thanks for having me a busy busy day uh, in many cities around the world today ottawa no different Uh, what's going to be happening uh, in ottawa today
2: Well, every year in Ottawa, we have a lot of ceremonies, actually, in a lot of different places, including Beechwood National Ceremony, and where I'll be down at um, the War Memorial. And... At the War Memorial, it's really a special feeling and honestly it's an honour and a privilege to cover it because it is one of the largest, if not often the largest ceremony in Canada. There are people who travel here just to be present for it Um, and we see thousands of thousands of people come down, but you can still hear a pin drop when the last post plays and in that moment of silence at 11-11 uh, when the children's choir sings and people get chills, so it's a very special ceremony here and in particular this year as we commemorate the 100th anniversary of the armistice because when you look up at the war memorial and you see those bronze statues, those are soldiers from the First World War that have been commemorated up there. So that makes it particularly special to be there this year.
0: I can imagine it's going to be a big turnout, as it will be uh, for many of the ceremonies today. Uh, there was some, or there has been talk, of the Prime Minister not being there. Uh, as you mentioned, it is the 100th anniversary of the end of that conflict. Uh, he, he came out saying, though, it was very... Very important that he be in France and take part in the ceremonies there. Uh, do you think that will, will be a topic today? Well, I've definitely talked
2: to some veterans who are upset about this. They think he should be here. Um, and, and you know what? Uh, far be it from me to question veterans uh, and their opinion because they're the ones who've put on the uniform. But I've also spoken to veterans who say, you know... Uh, Vimy in France is where all of this happened. And so to have him where it actually uh, unfolded, where Canadians actually died, you know what, that's the place he should be. Certainly it's been a discussion in the veterans community. Uh, the governor general is also overseas. She'll be at Beaumont-Himmel. Uh, Hamel. is where Newfoundland Regiment fought. Interestingly, still under Newfoundland's flag at that time because they weren't a part of Canada and their entire regiment was almost wiped out. Just over 60 people, I believe, uh, survived that. So it's certainly a, a touchy topic with veterans who are not particularly happy with the government right now Um, but it is one where there's some split opinion.
0: Exactly Uh, you're right though and when the moment comes uh, when we we stand and have the moment of silence like you said even in ceremonies with thousands of people you can hear that pin drop and and people do stop and and show respect and such. Um, Anything else that's different this year as far as security or anything else that people need to know about?
2: No, the security this year, though, is, is now the norm for us. Um, you know, I've been covering Remembrance Day I- for uh, national news networks for almost a decade. And I remember when there was virtually no security except for uh, a few police officers who had handguns. And uh, then it went to machine guns. And now we have, as I was coming into work, the street shut down and uh, large trucks that are filled with sand, uh, or in some cases, cement, to make sure that there can't be vehicle attacks. But uh, thankfully, here in Canada, we haven't had that happen at any of our ceremonies. Um, and of course, it is something people think about at this ceremony in particular because Nathan Cirillo, of course, the Canadian soldier, was shot and killed uh, while he was standing at the cenotaph there at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier standing guard. So it's on people's minds for sure, uh, but there is a lot of security that's done. There are snipers on top of buildings. There are uh, RCMP emergency response teams ready to move. And um, so far, everything has been peaceful.
0: And did you get the sense uh, in talking to veterans or talking to people that it will be a larger crowd this year because it is... Uh, the 100th year or the 100th anniversary of the end of that conflict?
2: You know, it it may well be. I find that there are certain people that I see every year, and especially the veterans, they come out, no matter what is happening. Um, And honestly, it was Afghanistan that's driven a lot of this for people because they are seeing the faces of young war veterans and it's no longer sort of the the theory that veterans exist or the veterans are um, the elderly grandparents you remember, who still, by the way, are alive. We are very fortunate to have some World War II veterans with us uh, and certainly Korea and other conflicts and peacekeeping missions. But these young veterans and seeing those who did not survive and come home in caskets on the highway heroes drove a big spike in the ceremonies and we've seen that maintained because people go and and they're standing next to somebody who's actually fought in a war who may be injured by it Um, and I think that certainly the 100th anniversary will have people's attention and may have more people coming out Um, but it's really in a lot of ways those live veterans that they stand next to that I think are, are driving the crowds in many cases.
0: It's a very good point, because while we focus on the 100th anniversary, and it is important to to commemorate that, you're absolutely right. There are veterans from other conflicts, uh, more recent conflicts, that we certainly don't want to forget about, and we certainly want to honour and thank as well.
2: Absolutely, and, um, you know, I... I love the end of the ceremony in Ottawa because we have the parade of veterans and you see everything from um men and women in their 90s who were part of the second world war uh, to guys who are in their 20s who served in Afghanistan and that's really excuse me sorry that's really something that um, is, is touching to see and to see the crowd applauding and recognizing their service. Um, and that said, I also know a lot of veterans who come and they don't wear their medals because they don't want people to make it about them. They want it to be about the fallen. So it's a very emotional day for those who have served.
0: All right. Uh, Mercedes, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, with a bit of a preview uh, for chatting this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. On Friday afternoon, the B.C. government officially put into place regulations that the Attorney General says will save ICBC $1 billion a year. But these are big changes to the way people will get paid out. 21 pages of regulations were released on Friday with the details of changes that are coming to ICBC. And to talk about this and what it might mean for people who are involved in crashes is Paul Doroshenko. He is a criminal lawyer in Vancouver and joins us on the line. Paul, thanks so much for being here.
3: Yeah, my pleasure. Good morning.
0: Uh, And have you been able to read all 21 pages of the new regulations?
3: Well, I mean, we knew this was coming. It's not a, it's not that big of a surprise. But they still did it on a Friday afternoon because they knew that uh, the, you know, it was potential for blowback. It's not something that's going to be popular with the uh with the population of the province i think
0: Uh, so what uh, sticks out to to you and you're right we knew uh, they were making these changes to icbc Uh, one of the things that people uh, seem to be focusing on is the idea of capping uh, payouts uh, for minor injuries is that something you think that's going to be challenged
3: there's yeah, there's two big concerns. With it, there's capping the injuries and then uh, shunting these things into their civil resolution tribunal. So capping the injuries is fifty five hundred dollar cap. Uh, basically, it's um, the way they define minor injuries is, is the biggest concern. You're in an accident, and every accident is different. And you know you're injured in an accident, and then you've got to you know seek compensation from ICBC. And the courts have looked at this over the years and come up with uh, directions basically from the various different court decisions on what you know your injury is basically worth when you're suffering from this, what you're going to get paid out uh, in damages. And uh, they didn't like the way the courts were going. Uh, I guess they didn't like what the courts had determined was fair uh, and uh, were concerned that this was fueling the dumpster fire. Uh, and now they've capped it. And, and the problem is that you're going to have a lot of people who are you know you're in an accident, it's not your fault. Somebody else hits you, rear ends you, what have you. Uh, and you know you're missing work and you're you're injured. you know you're you've got a concussion, uh, and uh, you're suffering depression as a result. And you may have some extended period of time where you are suffering from this, uh, and they want to basically resolve it as quickly as possible. Uh, if there's a dispute about it, pay it out and there, you know, send it to the civil resolution tribunal. If there's no dispute, because they're sort of thrusting this upon you and it's capped to start with, uh, write you a check and then that's the end of it. And you've lost your right after, you know, at that point to 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 take it further.
0: What would happen then, do you think, in that case, say somebody is paid out, uh, it's deemed a minor concussion, something that doesn't last longer than four months, six months down the road there's a recurring injury or something happens related to it. Is that where somebody would come to you or you would get involved?
3: Well, you, you, we're hoping that they come to us at the beginning because we're going to have to try and assess these things. I mean, there's, there's uh, lawyers who deal with this are acutely aware that uh, and doctors and 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 ICDC as well are acutely aware that that uh, symptoms sometimes show up later. Uh, injuries can be protracted and last for much longer. Uh, we have a two year limitation period generally to start a lawsuit. If you know it, and if you can't settle it out, but lots of times you're two years down the road and you're still trying to figure out you know when is this person going to be injured, and you've got to make a, a fairly um, dangerous uncomfortable assumption about you know the, the future of these injuries uh, we're now talking about you know resolving these things very quickly with their with their capped payout and uh, and then at that point once you've been paid that's it you know you're done you can't come back to the trough and look for more uh, the trough you... isn't necessarily the best analogy <laughs> but you, you see my point like you can't you can't come back and and once you've been paid that's it
0: uh, you mentioned as well, too, that, uh, that one of the other changes is that disputes will now be uh, adjudicated by the B.C. Civil Resolution Tribunal. Uh, what are your concerns with that?
3: This is the tribunalization we see of lots of aspects of our justice system. I call it the tribunalization. We, we create the government creates a tribunal. Uh, They write all the rules for the tribunal. The tribunal doesn't have the authority to go around the rules like you do in D.C. Supreme Court in certain circumstances. Um, They put extreme limits on the way in which you can put evidence and the manner evidence is submitted. You can't question a lot of the evidence, uh, but they still make findings of fact. So you don't have cross-examination. You don't have an opportunity to challenge the evidence that's been put in by the other side. Uh, and they make findings of fact, and and you know most of this is uh, is in written form uh, or online, uh, and you just get a decision back, and that's it. so it's 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 quite disturbing. you know we we they did this with uh, drinking and driving. Uh, anybody who's been through that uh, tribunal comes out the other side thinking this was unfair, uh, that I didn't get a fair hearing, and that's you know what we are expecting to see. Uh, you know, once these matters started hitting the Civil Resolution Tribunal, like the Civil Resolution Tribunal, when it was originally conceived, was intended to be dealing with those cases where, you know, uh, two neighbors are suing each other over $400. Uh, and it was meant to be, a, you know, really small, smaller than small claims court. It was uh, to address the fact that lots of things that were in small claims court were really so minor that it was hard to justify having a judge, a courtroom and so forth. Uh, But now, you know, of course, it doesn't take long until they expand it, especially when they see the advantage that they can get from it.
0: Well, and I would imagine, too, that that's the argument that would be made in favor of that, saying that a lot of these disputes shouldn't be in a courtroom taking up the time of a judge and expensive court time. But you're saying that it actually does need, or in some cases, you do need that platform or you do need the court to actually get a fair process.
3: You know, they they, they try to oust lawyers from the civil resolution tribunal and then you're expected to be making legal submissions to advance your case where and then you've got somebody from ICBC on the other side who is an adjuster who is trained in this and does it all the time I mean it's 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 really stacking the the case against the person Uh, and we'll see how that plays out I mean courts are increasingly uh, faced with um, appeals of matters from these tribunals uh, yeah the, everything this, this tribunal decisions made all the time, right like uh, even an adjuster taking the call can make certain decisions that are basically a tribunal making a decision uh, and most of those things are judicially reviewable. Well, these decisions from the civil resolution tribunal uh, we're going to start seeing them hitting d c supreme court and and it's you know the, the cost of of um, uh, of adjudicating it isn't going to end at the civil resolution tribunal in a lot of cases because people are going to want to appeal it. And we've already got, you know, a huge backlog of appeals of, um, of other uh, administrative tribunal matters in B.C. Supreme Court as it is. So instead of paying a you know, maybe small claims uh, uh, judge to hear a uh, $20,000 injury case, uh, we're going to uh, we're gonna have it at the Civil Resolution Tribunal and then maybe an appeal of the B.C. Supreme Court.
0: Uh, so do you think then it's not actually going to streamline the process?
3: I, I, it's you know predicting the future is awfully hard. I guess we'll wait and see. I'm concerned about the implications, obviously, because I I'm I'm concerned people are not going to be properly compensated. I'm concerned that ICBC is going to run roughshod over people because they're going to be able to do that. Uh, and uh, you know that is my those are my primary concerns. It, it, it's a wait and see. I mean it comes into effect April first. Uh, of 2019. And from that point on, uh, everything's going to be changed. And and, uh, within probably a year of that, we're going to know if this was a catastrophic failure uh, or something that assisted them. But, you know, I I, I haven't researched it extensively. I'm regularly told by my colleagues that in the provinces where they capped claims, uh, it hasn't led to any reduction in in, uh, costs for insurance companies. So, you know, I guess we'll wait and see. You know, Manitoba has public insurance. Saskatchewan has public insurance. They've already uh, tried it in other provinces, and it hasn't, uh, it hasn't led to any big savings. So is this going to stop the dumpster fire? Uh, you know, I think the dumpster fire, most British Columbians take a look at the amount of pay and bonuses that went to management at ICBC, uh, and you can start drawing some conclusions about the way they spend money uh, on
0: themselves. All right. Well, you're right. We will have to uh, wait and see uh, how these uh, new changes unfold. Paul Doroshenko, I'm sure we will talk to you about this uh, again. But thank you so much for being with us this morning. Yes, yeah, my pleasure. Well, the headline reads, why first past the post isn't to be abandoned lightly. And it is a very interesting read. And Tristan Hopper wrote this piece. He's a columnist with the National Post and joins us on the line to talk a bit more about it. Tristan, thanks so much for being with us again. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. First of all, did you watch the debate on Thursday?
4: No, I missed it. I was too busy writing about another uh, you know, important issue. So I, I'm afraid I did. The only thing I thought was at the end, uh, apparently uh, John Horgan said that it's lit and, uh, and or woke. Uh, to to support proportional representation. So that's the only takeaway I got from the debate, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, even watching it, you know, it was one of those moments where at the end you felt that that was 30 minutes of your life that you weren't going to get back, and you hadn't really learned anything about uh, the different voting systems. Uh, There was one point, though, where uh, John Horgan did say that uh, proportional representation removes conflict, therefore is great because it encourages more women to get into politics, because apparently we're all a bunch of delicate flowers that run crying when first past the post is the system. So th- right, right, th- yeah, of course. Yes, yes, we couldn't possibly uh, be part of this. But you have written about First Past the Post and looking at some uh, examples of, of proportional representation. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, the points that you raised in this piece.
4: Uh, so, well, I guess uh, the, the whole takeaway is I, when I was a younger man, I was all about the proportional representation. I mean, it seems, you know, obviously uh, it's more fair. So if 30 percent of people vote for a particular party, it makes sense that 30% uh, of the legislature should represent that party. Uh, so I was just looking at, uh, this, this started a couple of years ago, I was looking at what are the pro-first-past-the-post F, F, uh, arguments, and I found them actually quite compelling, and I was, uh, I was a convert, so I was trying to uh, sort of communicate uh, my convertedness over the biggest one, and uh, this is one it sounds, it sounds a little extreme, but it keeps extremists out. And I'm sure there's a lot of proportional representation fans yelling at the radios right now. But, um, I mean, and they'll say, well, our system is different than all the PR systems, you know, throughout Europe, you're just citing all the worst examples. But if you look at extremism in Europe, so you've got Westminster in London, which is first best both, and then you've got the whole rest of Europe, and that's all proportional representation with a few exceptions. It's really hard for extremists to get a political toehold in the UK. And that's been true for 80 years. Um, So uh, I was reading, uh, you know, political history saying that, you know, Britain had a fascist problem in the 1930s. But because of First Past the Post, unless you had a bunch of fascists living in one riding, which you usually don't. I mean, every country has Nazis, uh, but you don't have enough Nazis in one particular riding to get someone elected. So the British Union of Fascists kept running in elections, kept getting pretty large shares of the vote, I think north of five percent, which would have qualified them uh, for a seat under, you know, most PR systems being considered in modern times, uh, but they never they were able to get a seat, which kind of denied them legitimacy, because once you've got an MP, then you've got an MP and they're bringing up stuff in Parliament. And then, you know, that that's sort of you know the start of your sort of roll towards legitimacy. And that was true in modern times with the uh, British National Party. Same thing. Uh, an extreme anti-immigrant very right-wing uh, party in the UK, which just couldn't get representation, whereas if they had been in any other European country with a PR system, uh, that would have been easily done.
0: Uh, Exactly, and you're right. I'm sure there are people uh, who are in favour of uh, Prop Rep uh, throwing things at the radio right now. But, as you say, there are examples of this. To say that is not to to just throw this out there and uh, make a comment without being able to back it up. Even look at what's happening in Germany right now and look at what's happening, and the question being, or I think the concern of a lot of people, is imagine if this uh, extremist party is voted in a way that then holds the balance of power.
4: Right, and I don't get the argument where... Uh, you know, proportional representation, re- representation will reduce conflict because I, one thing about first past the post is it creates kind of these diluted, big-tent, lamo o parties, uh, which we, we, of course, know here in Canada, we've got kind of the blah conservative party and then the blah liberal party, and then same thing in the, in the states right now. I mean, whatever you think about the extremes of the Democrat and Republican parties right now, they are very big-tent moderate parties by the standards of Europe, uh, which is, again, uh, ground zero for proportional representation. And one thing uh, I didn't know about Canada or I didn't appreciate before writing this is uh, I, I was calling up some uh, parliamentary expert and they said, well, Canada is one of the longest lasting democracies in the world. I think we're top five or top 10. Uh, even if you look at France has rewritten their constitution like five times, uh, you know, Japan has barely, uh, barely gone 75 years or something. So I it's it's we've done 151 years on basically the same system of voting and the same system of government. So they were coming at me with kind of a Burkean argument and saying, well, it's it worked pretty well so far. We went from an agrarian country where only sort of rich white men could vote. And we've gone into a very progressive country in only 151 years, despite massive expansion. This voting system seems to have done well. I don't know why you'd want to screw with that.
0: Right. Uh, Heavy on accountability. You've also written about this because that is also one of the issues. And it's not just the switching to a new system in BC that people are grappling with. It's the idea, the, the referendum question. We don't know a lot of what it will actually look like as far as who the MLAs will be, how they will be chosen. But I have talked to a lot of people who don't like the idea. A lot of them are converts like yourself who do not like the idea that their representative might not be the person they voted for.
4: Uh, yeah, this was uh, the argument. Uh, Glenn Clark, uh, former BC premier, was uh, interviewed by Business in Vancouver, and that was his sort of main argument: is you know the guy I vote for, I want to be the person who represents me. So if something goes wrong, I can go approach that person and yell at them at the constituency office. Now, PR, there's a variety of different systems that are being proposed, but they all end up basically the way you ensure equal, uh, you know, proportional representation in Parliament is that um, you're going to have a mixture of. You're going to still vote for your MLA, but there's also going to be seats in the legislature that are sort of party seats. So if you've got 20 percent of the votes and you only got like, you know, three elected in an actual constituency, then you'll just be able uh, to fill those seats with, you know, party appointees. So the concern is, and this is uh, the one coming from old hands from the left and the right, are they saying, well, there's just going to be all these, you know, it's just going to be a a neo-senate. There's going to be all these party appointees who are answerable to no constituency and never had to campaign now, you could argue there's not a lot of overlap between someone who's good at campaigning and someone who's good at governing, which is fair enough. But uh, yeah. And uh, oh, another thing is um, you're you're less likely to have majority government. So when New Zealand brought in a uh, uh, form proportional representation in the 1990s, um, I mean, it's done well for the country. Uh, I think there's been increases in representation uh, for minorities and women, but they've also had no majority government since the 1990s. And one of the consequences of that is you don't know who to blame when things go sideways. Um, Now, this may seem uh, like I'm I'm being hyperbolic, but if the country's in tatters in a couple of years, we know it's 100% Justin Trudeau's fault. Now, if he was part of a coalition of like four or five parties, like you see in Belgium, he'd be able to say, well, it's not my fault. I had to do it to, you know, to assure a deal, you know, with this party and this party to, to hold everything together. So. I don't want to bring up Israel because PR folks always yell at me when I bring up Israel, but that's kind of their problem is that anybody governing has to answer to like seven or eight parties and uh, no one can really be fully accountable for any decision.
0: All right. Uh, It's a very interesting read, Tristan. We're right out of time, but uh, thank you so much uh, both for writing this and for coming on the show this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. Continuing uh, the various conversations we've been having today about uh, Remembrance Day and uh, the importance of remembering and stopping and having uh, the moments of silence and looking back. Uh, We're now looking back at a different story, and a new book is out. It's called Varsity's Soldiers, written by Eric McGeer, and Eric McGeer is with us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us this morning
5: my pleasure thank you for having me uh,
0: tell us a bit obviously we don't have time to go through the entire book but um, what what are Varsity soldiers and what is the book about well the
5: book is about the contribution made by the university of toronto as well as by the other universities of the time to the uh, recruitment and training of officers and officer training programs that the canadian universities hosted from 1914 until 1968 And there is certainly a very uh, fertile story waiting to be told about the University of British Columbia, because it was one of the leading contingents in Canada. But they were uh, officer training programs that sprang into life in 1914 with the outbreak of the First World War. And uh, I was trying to uh, open up in this book the story of the way in which Canadian universities contributed to the war effort uh, in the First World War and the Second World War, and then maintained a training program in times of peace in the interwar period and in the post-1945 era. To select and train uh, young men for various roles, uh, particularly engineers or doctors or dentists or other kinds of specialists, uh, as well as eventually young women to uh, serve their country in the militia and to be ready as a kind of trained officer corps if ever the need arose to uh, to participate in a foreign war and have an army ready to go overseas.
0: And you refer to this, or, or the write-up in, uh, of the book uh, refers to it as a very important but an overlooked chapter in uh, in history. Why do you think it was overlooked?
5: Well, I think the officer training programs, uh, when they disappeared in 1968, uh, sort of took with them the memory of what they had done. And I think that the people who have studied higher education in Canada have been focusing on other questions, which are also very important, you know, the intellectual and social and other concerns of the universities and I think that the uh, very uh, uh, immense effort that these universities made in the world wars was was forgotten um, as the times changed and perspectives changed but I hope now with the centenary of the armistice in 1918 and perhaps with a greater appreciation for the role that uh, all segments of Canadian society played in the uh, in the world wars and in the uh, very difficult interwar period that other Uh, aspects of the story whether it's universities or whether it's you know the various minorities across Canada or the role of women I think we've opened our perspectives much more widely in the last 10 or 15 years and I hope this will be a contribution towards that kind of general flow of scholarship uh, in the country.
0: How challenging was it for you to find the documents and to do the research to write this book?
5: Well, um, the challenge was to handle it all. I mean, there's an immense amount of uh, paperwork, uh, which is a good thing. But on the other hand, uh, you feel that you're kind of swimming in this great ocean of detail. But I would say that uh, if there are any um, you know, history students or historians out in D.C. Um, interested in the subject, I'm sure the UBC archives are just, you know, packed to the rafters with all kinds of great information, uh, as well as Library and Archives Canada. It's a uh, It was a very well-detailed story and a very uh, conscientious story in the sense that these officer contingent um, and these training programs kept very careful records of all of their activities, uh, the student newspapers of the time, uh, some of the student diaries. It's a very, very rich um, field of study, and I think it it opens up a chapter in every Canadian university's history that I think um, alumni or the universities themselves might be very interested in finding out. It's, It's a very human story. And it's told in very human terms by the contemporaries and the people who went through the programs. So I hope that it's something that will inspire people to have a look at this, because I think it would certainly enrich the history of the University of British Columbia to have a a history of that contingent. And people like Gordon Shrum, who was the first chancellor of uh, Simon Fraser University, was very active at the UBC military training programs and some very eminent uh, scholars at UBC in the course of that university's history. So I would hope, as I say, that um, that will lead people to investigate that at greater length.
0: Was there anything that you uncovered? And like you said, there was so much to go through. Was there anything that you uncovered that really came as a surprise, or that sticks out in your mind?
5: Well, it's a good question, Jill. I think a couple of things uh, leapt out, mainly from the um, the times of peace. Um, that in the 1930s, there was a lot of focus on the on the student peace groups, and the understandable. Um, avoidance of war, which we, you know, if we think of the appeasement uh, of that time. And they, they, weren't right, they weren't wrong to think that. But at the same time, the, um, the number of students enrolled in the military training programs at the universities who felt that uh, deterrence uh, was the best um, uh, sort of reply to the threat that the Nazi or fascist dictators posed. And so I think it showed that the, um, the student reaction in the 1930s might be a little bit uh, different than what we supposed it to have been, and I think also in the fifties and sixties, in which you think of a time as you know the beginning of student unrest and a huge social change that comes in the nineteen sixties again, the numbers that the contingents were able to maintain in that time shows there's another side to student life in in the in the nineteen sixties that I think has gone a little bit unappreciated, so I think sometimes it's been very helpful to to see the the other side of the same coin with students' life uh, in the thirties and the sixties which was the biggest surprise to me, uh, coming back to your question. I think there's much more there that um, um, balances the picture of student life in those times.
0: All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Eric McGeer, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this. Uh, Very timely to be talking about it on Remembrance Day. Uh, Thanks so much and have a, a good rest of your day.
5: Thank you very much, Jill. Thanks for having me.
0: And joining us on the line from Ottawa is our Defence Minister, Harjit Sajjan. Uh, Minister Sajjan, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk with us this morning. No, thank you for having me. Uh, how were things? Uh, I was able to see some of the ceremony in Ottawa, and we were speaking uh, earlier with some people who were there. Uh, how were things at the ceremony, especially uh, this uh, time marking the 100 years since the end uh, of World War I?
6: No, Remembrance Days are always special um, uh, to Canadians regardless of where you know uh, which community uh, they we hold the Members Day ceremony. But this one in particular, the uh you know, the hundredth anniversary of the armistice, uh is a very important uh day to reflect on the sac- the tremendous sacrifice that has been made by Canadians on um, for our freedom and on our behalf.
0: Uh, do you find, too, uh, that enough is done to, to remember uh, veterans like yourself who served in Afghanistan and who have served in the more recent battles?
6: Uh, look, Canadians, the Canadians, one, one thing that I've realized is regardless of where I've, I've traveled, Canadians are sincerely appreciative of the tremendous sacrifice that's been made. And, and you, brought, well, you raise a really good point. Um, We have right now uh, our women and men in the Canadian Armed Forces serving all over the world. Um, When their families are back home, um, uh, you know, honoring uh, honoring their service uh, as well. But one thing I can assure you that regardless of where I've traveled, the the sincere appreciation that Canadians have shown to the members who are currently serving uh, is one that's very heartfelt and uh, very proud of how how Canada is recognizing not just the... The sacrifice of the past, the services that uh, our, our women and men are providing today.
0: And how is it different, or, or how can you explain it to people who haven't served, who haven't done what you have done? In that, it, it must be different when you are standing in in, in a ceremony like that. Uh, you are a representative of, of Canada there, but but as somebody who's been in battle, how is it different, or what what are the feelings that you that you go through during that ceremony?
6: Uh, to be honest, it is probably more awkward for me to stand as a representative of the government and uh, far more comfortable to stand there as a, as, as a veteran. Um, and But it's a reminder to all of us, regardless if we have served, and one thing for Canadians, it's a reminder to all of us of what is the best way for us to honour uh, the sacrifice that has been made in the past and the tremendous service that our women and men provide now. And to me, uh, the biggest way is to make sure that all of us live our lives to the fullest, uh, and to make sure that we pass uh, the, the history of this sacrifice on to our children. And I, and I know that it's being done because in the morning before we did the ceremony, I met with uh, hundreds of kids from different schools who were there to uh, hear about the, the tremendous uh, sacrifice.
0: And what does it mean, do you think, for veterans especially, to be able to look out to that crowd and to see people who on a Sunday or whatever day of the week, it happens to be a Sunday this year, uh, who have taken the time to come and physically be at a ceremony?
6: It's, I think one of the biggest things that our veterans... um, Kind of think about and whether you know, especially when you've been serving, is to be appreciated. And on a Remembrance Day, they do get a, a genuine and sincere sense of the, uh, uh, the appreciation that Canadians are showing very publicly. We know that it's done in a, in a very private way, regardless of what day it is, uh, what um, the day of the year it is. But on Remembrance Day, it is really special, and to and, uh, see Canadians clapping. Uh, for them cheering them on, and just to say thank you um, that goes along with uh, for our veterans.
0: A lot of people uh, tend to think of Canada and uh, Canadians and also look at our role as peacekeepers. Uh, is is do we overlook that a bit on a day like this, or 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 how important is it, I suppose, to also uh, think about peacekeepers and that role that Canada serves?
6: Uh, no, I think when it comes to uh, the the role that the Canadian armed forces plays, is this, is this even far more than uh peacekeeping we the lessons learned from the great wars that we've had is we have to work hard to maintain the peace and it takes effort um and so whether it's our troops who are in mali right now as part of u.n operations or whether they're part of a coalition in iraq right now or part of nato forces um uh you know making sure that uh, nations stay within a rule-based order um all, that, all of that matters. And uh, we have to, at the end of the day, look at conflict and look at ways to uh, uh, prevent it. And where there is conflict, how, we, how can we reduce it? Because at the end of the day, when you have all the war, there are no winners. And uh, and that's that's how we need to reflect uh, today on real and, Day.
0: And you mentioned, too, that one of the best ways to do that is, is to live our lives or to live the best lives. Do you see people, do you think that people are doing that?
6: I think they are, but I think we should, we need to talk about this probably a little bit more. I've, when I talk to students, I always remind them. I say, if you ever have an opportunity, go on a battlefield tour um, and witness and read about the history and look where some of the, some of those uh, soldiers are buried. Because it could help you answer the question why it's important to succeed. I mean, the best way to honor that sacrifice is to make sure that you live life to the fullest. That's what our veterans w- would have wanted. And, and I think in many regards that's happening, I'm really pleased to see more uh, elementary and high school kids um, uh, uh, learning more about uh, our, war, uh, our history. And this is not about learning about the war. This is about learning about the cost of war and what it takes to, uh, to prevent it. And they need to learn this because they are the leaders um, of Canada as well. And, and I have a lot of faith in them to making sure that uh, they can reduce conflict in this world.
0: And uh, we kind of touched on this as well, though uh, the importance there also, and I, and again, a lot of the focus today is the 100 years since uh, armistice. But do you think we are learning enough about why Canadians were in Afghanistan, uh, the different battles, uh, the, the current deployments, and and what's happening right now, and the importance of that?
6: I think there's a we in Canada. I think we tend we tend to take things for granted, probably a little bit more. Because the geography, we are distant uh, from some of the conflicts, but that's a good thing. But we have to really remind ourselves that this day and age, um, we, we can't be an island of stability in the ocean of turmoil, and, and Canada needs to do its part, and we are. Uh, so, when we look at uh, uh, the, the work that needs to be done, uh, one thing i when we when I did a lot of consultations for our defence policy review, we heard from Canadians. All across the country, one thing they said that they wanted us to do our part. They wanted us to uh, to do our part in preventing um, uh, conflict. So I think uh, Canadians, um, to an extent, uh, understand, uh, understand um, the role that, that that we that we can play. But some of the lessons that uh, from the past, uh, you know, we do need to be constantly reminded of them.
0: All right, uh, Minister Sajjan, we'll leave it there, Uh, but thank you both. uh, Thank you so much for your service, and also thank you for taking some time with us today. I appreciate it.
6: No, thank you for having me.